You are listening to episode 41 of the Interlude Podcast, my conversation with Dr. Kelly Fraden. Dr. Fraden is a childhood cancer survivor, a mom of two, a pediatrician practicing in New York City, and the author of the newly published Parenting in a Pandemic. There is so much great stuff on this episode, and I hope you enjoy it. I'm your host, Dr. Eleanor Toplinski, and I am a board-certified medical oncologist specializing in the treatment of breast and gynecologic cancers. I started the Interlude podcast as a way to share the journeys and experiences of women who are going through cancer. On this podcast, we talk about anything and everything related to the cancer journey, the treatment, and life after cancer. As a reminder, the information discussed on this podcast is not meant to serve as medical advice. Any specific medical questions should be directed to your healthcare team. Welcome back. I'm here today with Dr. Kelly Fraden. And Kelly, can you start by introducing yourself? Hi. Um, so I am a pediatrician and a mom, and I, I live and work in New York City. My experience in pediatrics has mostly been in academic complex care, which is taking care of kind of the sickest kids with genetic problems or prematurity, things that really uh, cause a lot of problems long term or working in public health, and now I'm working in school health for New York City. So my experiences have kind of varied professionally. Most recently, I've been working on developing my writing skills, and I just wrote a new book about parenting during a pandemic to provide um, families with some evidence-based guidance about coronavirus. Kelly and I kind of started, you know, we met virtually on Instagram, and I've been following her throughout the last few months and her posts on COVID-19 and how to not only survive, but how to, you know, kind of thrive during the pandemic have been really, really wonderful. Kelly, where can people find you on Instagram if they want to follow along? Thanks so much for your kind words. So, you know, my account I originally started just to give advice to my friends because I feel like as a pediatrician mom, so many friends ask me questions <laughs> like, what's this rash or do I really need to go to the dentist by one? <laughs> and I was giving all this advice to my friends and I figured I could just give it publicly and more people could benefit. So I'm at, at advice I give my friends. And it's a really, really great account about not just COVID, but all sorts of, you know, things about parenting. And I definitely <laughs> do not take my children to the dentist by one. Um, so tell me if you are a childhood cancer survivor. Can you talk a little bit about that experience and whether you, how that has shaped your life after? Absolutely. So, you know, it was obviously a huge deal, both for me and my family and, and, I um, I really, because I was so young, I don't remember that much about the experience directly, but my parents still tell a lot of stories about it and how it kind of wrecked their lives. And they remember sitting me down to tell me tell me I was sick. And, and after delivering all this information and news, me being like, but wait, can't I still play? Like, isn't it going to be okay if I can still play? Like, I feel fine. You know, so it it's definitely been um, a helpful experience to see how having an illness um, changes your perspective on things. Uh, and in that way, I think it's helped me to become a more empathetic physician, you know, understanding 
what's really important to people and that that can vary and understanding about what what it is when a parent is really scared because even even in healthy children people parents get very worried about the well-being of their child and immediately sometimes they go to dark places and to know um to recognize that look in a parent's eye i think it it can really help help to um lead to a better connection as their physician so I, I actually even wrote my application to college about how being a cancer survivor maybe led me in that direction. It's so funny how these things go. No, but it's true. I mean, I think there's all these major experiences in our life. And in the moment, we may not even realize that they're major experiences. And, you know, you were so young. At what age, and this is probably more as your experience as a pediatrician, but at what age do children start to understand the severity of such illness. You know, I have a lot of young women who are diagnosed with, and I, I primarily take care of breast and GYN cancer. So I have a lot of young women, unfortunately, who are dealing with it and they have young kids and they always struggle with, well, what do I tell my kids? How do I tell them? You know, what's your experience and knowledge about that? It's a great question. And, you know, of course we do see that there's a range of normal development. There are some uh, four and five-year-olds who are pretty um, abstract and not really able to, to dig into things like that. But there are some very precocious two-year-olds who have a lot of questions about things. So I do think it requires knowing your child to know what they can understand. I think children overall are incredibly insightful at picking up when something's going on. And often children will under will imagine things to be worse than they are. So in my experience, I, I do encourage people to share difficult situations with their children when they when they feel comfortable doing so because sometimes the fear of the unknown or the the sensing tension that you don't know where it's coming from can almost be worse on a child than the facts. Mm -hmm. And sometimes there are ways to, you know, whether it's, you know, you dealing with cancer as a mother or, or you trying to talk to your young child about coronavirus, you know, there are ways to talk about something that's really upsetting in a way that still makes a child feel safe, you know, like, yes, um, it's a very serious condition, but my doctors are doing everything to help me and and we have a plan to move forward and do the best um, we can. And, and sometimes having that um, conversation with your child can, can help release some of their worries. And you can even direct some of their anxiety in productive ways. Like, you know, you could really help help me by making sure to clean up your toys so that we can save my energy to go to the park later or whatever it is. But allowing children to participate in some way sometimes can, can facilitate connection and actually make a situation more manageable. Is there a time or a place where it's good to have those conversations? So I had a woman on the podcast who was a caretaker of her husband with glioblastoma. And unfortunately, he passed away earlier this year. But one of the things that she talked about was she found it very, or the, the best way to talk to her kids was in the car because everyone was kind of facing forward, right? So you didn't, it, you had a little bit of distance and you could have those hard 
conversations. But, you know, what's a good way? I mean, you know, a lot of times we kind of interrupt them when they're playing and that probably isn't the best. Absolutely. You know, uh, you know, play is like the work of children. So you imagine somebody barging into your office when you're working and telling you something important. It's not always the best time. I think when having difficult conversations with children, I agree that being side by side is better sometimes than face by face because we can overwhelm children with the intensity sometimes when we make it into a big discussion. Depending on the age of the child, children under under eight, um, sometimes you know, you might have to break it into smaller discussions to give them a chance to understand and ask questions because you may find that they, they listen and they don't know what to say or they don't really understand it, but they'll continue thinking about it over the next week and they may return back to it later. And that's normal. And it, it, um, it can help them process things at their own speed. Sometimes it's just too much to take in if it's all at once. So tell me, tell me about your experience in working in school health and public health, and how did you come to that from academics? Right. Um, so I, I loved my academic complex care job, but it was a big job, right? Because, um, you know, there was one Thanksgiving when um, one of my patients almost died, and, and it was all, you know, the whole holiday weekend, it was all I could do was to try to help that family through the crisis. And that same year, the Christmas, one of my patients ran out of oxygen at home and it was just another crisis in the middle of Christmas services at church. And, and so I needed, because my kids are only two and six, I needed to find something that was more family friendly for now. And uh, working in school health is great because you get summers and holidays off and it, and it's during school hours so I can be available for my children in the, in the afternoons and evenings. You know, it's, it's funny because in the context of this podcast, like I would actually say that being a cancer survivor probably has guided me to make uh, decisions more more reflective of like what's important to me, my values and long-term goals, because, you know, you, you don't take things for granted. And, and you remember that like, if it's really important for me to spend time when my kids are young with them, like I'm going to do it. Cause who knows what's going to happen in the future. You never know. And you know, I'm in very good health now, but you still have that awareness that things can change. It's very true. I mean, I talk about this with patients all the time, you know, cancer, forces you to really reconcile your life, right? In terms of, and as you get older, we all have these visions of what our life is going to look like, right? Maybe we'll get married, we'll have kids, we'll have this job, you know, we'll retire and so forth. And cancer kind of changes all of that. And people very struggle so much with reconciling what their new life looks like with what Mm -hmm. they thought it would look like. And part of it, I tell them, you know, you don't know what's going to happen tomorrow. You don't know what's going to happen in 10 years. And I think COVID has really taught us, taught a lot of people that. Um, And so it's important to really prioritize your life today and what's important to you today. And sometimes certainly those are changes and choices that we can't always make. And some people are not in the situation to make them, but I think it's important, you know, conversations to have with yourself about where, what are you doing with your life? You know, are you happy with it? Does it bring you joy? 
Exactly. You know, and I think it's made me more aware of the advice I give people during the pandemic also, because I think a lot of pediatricians, because there are unknowns with the current situation, it's easiest for us to give advice of be as safe as you can and lock down as much as you can and don't see anyone. But we have to be aware that um, when we say those kinds of things, some people don't have forever, you know, and what, maybe it's the grandparents who who really want to see the, the kids I'm talking to. And, and my recommendations, if they're very black and white and very strict, may not acknowledge that people have different priorities and different values that they bring to making these decisions about their safety. And that, that's really, really important. And I think everyone, you know, and being an oncologist and having this podcast has taught me that, but everyone... You know, the way that people react and the things that people say and do, they're all coming from something inside them. So a lot of times we wonder, well, why are people seeing their families, right? We're recommending quarantine. And it may be that, you know what, they don't have anyone to watch their kids or grandma's very sick. And so I think understanding where people are coming from and trying to meet them halfway is really important. I mean, I see this all the time in patients who have stage four cancer, who we don't know how long they're going to live. And they say, the only thing that's going to bring me happiness is seeing my grandchildren. And so they're willing to take the risk. And it's not my decision to tell them that they can't. I think, you know, our decision as doctors is to give them the information that they need to make an educated decision. Right. I mean, I've seen that with my, my own uh, family. I mean, my my dad um, had he'd retired of, of this year, and he'd been looking forward to going on this golfing trip with his friends. And there was originally supposed to be six of them, but two of them actually passed away in the last two years. Uh, they were going abroad to golf, and and when the pandemic started, I was like, "You're going to cancel, right?" <laughs> and my dad was like, "Well, you know, it's really important to me, and like having lost my friends, like it shows me that like I may not have forever to do something like this." And he was like, you know, I'm aware of the risks. I understand how I can take precautions to minimize my risk. And, and as his daughter, I mean, what could I say? I have to respect that he's making a rational decision that reflects his priorities, you know? Yeah, I think it's understanding what people's priorities are, right? And, and then acting accordingly. How do you feel, I mean, in working in a school how do you feel about the whole, you know, the controversies now about going back to school and virtual and hybrid and daycares? And I mean, that's a very loaded question, but kind of what's your overall thought on it? Uh, It's been difficult to watch uh, for me because of course I have so many opinions about it. Um, I think what's been the most difficult is to see opportunities when I thought that we could have served uh, our children better go by. So, um, you know, I think that uh, we have pretty conclusive evidence that younger children are less likely to spread coronavirus. And I I worry a lot about populations where children may not have the supervision and safe place for enriching experiences when schools are closed. and I worry about children with special health care needs, many of whom depend on therapies that they get in school, like children with autism or cerebral palsy. Um, so, 
So I, I worry a lot about school being closed for those populations. And I, I just, um, I hope that our leaders can find a way to prioritize getting as many of those children who can't have their needs met with distance learning back to the classroom safely, you know, as soon as possible. Because I feel like we have the resources and we have the space. It's just making our priorities clear. I read an article about how in 1918, when with the 1918 pandemic, they were having classes outside. They, you know, people like in parkas and they're just learning outside. And I think you know, my perspective on it is we should be really focusing on how do we open safely, not do we open at all, but saying, you know mm-hmm. what, we have to do this. And so how are we going to do it successfully? Right. Yeah. I mean, school, school has always been a pivotal place for children, but in, in places like New York City, school has also become a, a medical home for a lot of children, you know, where their therapies and dental care, their mental health care, their sometimes their, their health care, you know, school-based health centers are really common. And they, they also give out glasses in these schools. I mean, these are real hubs for um, meeting the needs of children. And, and those services are provided there intentionally because it makes it more convenient for families and makes it more likely that the kids will get what they need. Um, but I worry a lot about the disruption, um, the disruption, not just the academic and social disruption, but the disruption of the whole system. You know, I hope we can figure it out. This year goes by quickly and next year can be more of a normal year for everybody (laughs) with vaccines. We're all hoping that. What have you seen emerge as kind of the greatest issues surrounding parenting and kids right now in the last few months? You know, there's a lot of talk about things like screen time and, you know, the list goes on and on and play dates with kids and socialization and what in your experience has been kind of the most common themes that we're dealing with. Yeah, I I think a lot of parents are really worried about socialization and I feel like we can reassure them in that regard because, People are quick to to forget about the rich social environment that you provide your child in the home as well. You know, uh, you're as parents interacting with your kids or with siblings. You're you're providing social stimulus stimulation to your children, and some children, if they're old enough, can really engage in virtual virtual activities to build relationships too. So, I'm not as worried about social needs. But I am more worried about mental health needs. Uh, There was just a report that came out last week, I think, from the um, CDC about uh, 63% of young adults with clinically significant anxiety and depression, one out of four, like young adults, like the 18-year-old, 24-year-old group, one out of four of them feeling suicidal during this time. And it's that kind of a number is really mind-boggling to me. And and I worry... um, uh, so it's just a reminder for all of us that, you know, going through stress during this time is is normal, um, but we should all be checking on our loved ones and we should all be reminding our loved ones and ourselves that if we need more help, you know, that there are still resources available to help with these mental health issues and kind of prevent a crisis. Striking to me because I see, you know, my patients and they talk about their children and it's really been striking how some kids are having a very hard time and parents are having, you know, I think everyone's having a hard time and 
there's a lot of stress that I think people are putting on themselves that's almost Mm self-imposed and then there's external stress and you know it's a really it's a hard time to live in right now for a lot of people yeah and it I mean that's why I uh, wrote the book because I felt this urgency to try to do something to help you know because I could feel the tension and the stress and I, I in some ways you know, I think we can reassure some people that while the whole world is locked down, their absolute risk may not be as high as they imagine. Uh, you know, and and we can encourage them to still be responsible members of the community and try to prevent getting sick. But we can hopefully provide them with a little bit of peace of mind and a a feeling of like having some control over their choices if they have, you know, good information available. Well, one of the things I loved about your book was that it's not just all about children. You know, you talk about taking care of yourself as a parent, as an adult. And, you know, I I think that that's so true. We can't take care of others unless we're taking care of ourselves. Exactly. You know, the well-being of the parent is paramount to the well-being of the child and and you can't um you just can't this is a marathon and not a sprint and it's not realistic to think that you can do everything with fewer resources and um and maintain your sanity and wellness so you know we have to do something whether it's lowering our expectations or finding more help, uh, we have to do something to make this time more manageable for parents. So how does one write a book in three months or not even <laughs> less than that? I'm sure, you know, how, how, what was the process like? You know, so I, I had been sharing that advice on Instagram for some time and I went to write my first newsletter because I hadn't, I hadn't written a newsletter and I had, you know, thousand subscribers. Um, so I went to pull all my coronavirus content off my Instagram account and it was 50 pages. And I was like, huh, you know, like maybe I could turn this into a book. And, um, I spent like a couple hours on it and sent it to a friend who's in publishing and she was like, do it, do it, do it. And with her encouragement, I I did it in about three weeks, honestly. And I did it, I don't know, from 5am to 7pm, 7am. And then from 8 p.m. to midnight because I was watching my kids too at the time. So naps also were a source of time for them. (laughs) But I I guess I had like a strong opinion about what I wanted to say. So that helped me to tap it out. And I had done a lot of the research, um, both for work and for educating myself about my family. So it was easier to draw on the sources. That's still very impressive. Um, <laughs> so I and thank you for you know giving me a copy of it to read because I loved it and I think it's oh thank you so much a great great resource for people that you know and it's broken down nicely it's broken down into chapters where you can kind of you know this chapter may not apply to you but you know it's little tidbits of information that you can devour when you need them um, which is really really helpful and you know I think who knows how you know, what the science and the data will evolve. But I think that it's still, you know, those, that book is really applicable for kind of any sort of pandemic or crisis that may emerge in the future. Where can people get the book? Um, you know, so it's available now as a paperback and ebook on Amazon. 
And as an audio book, um, it's available. Uh, you can find the link on my website by this platform called Oz Sound or Apple Books. Audible has like a two-month wait to get processed, but maybe it'll eventually be on Audible. We'll see. <laughs> uh, and you recorded it. You read it. I did. I recorded it in my closet. <laughs> what was that process like? Do you <laughs> have to be like perfect the whole time and it has to be even and... Yeah, it, you you try to get it to sound good. Obviously, you make mistakes. It's like over five hours of reading, and then you have to go back and edit them out. And I actually hired someone to help with that part because it was just too labor intensive for me. Yeah, I can imagine. I mean, I edit the podcast, but it's you know, there's always like sounds and things like that. And it's a podcast, so it's not perfect. But an audiobook, I feel like, really has to be, you know, spot on. Yes, they have strict standards for the quality. So that was a lot of work. I think, it, you know, a lot of parents had told me that they don't really have time to read a book. And that I thought the audiobook would make it more accessible, uh, accessible for people who are busy and who, you know, may not be able to sit down and read. <laughs> yeah, I think that, you know, a lot of people are struggling with time right now and priorities and figuring out how you fit it all in. So it's great because you can get your bite bite-sized pieces. And it's almost like a podcast, right? You can listen to an hour at a time and get, and get, get what you need from it. Um, and I think exactly super, super helpful. So going back a little bit to your experience with cancer and how have your parents been shaped long-term by the experience? And you may not know that, but I think that's an important point. Absolutely. I, I definitely think it was harder on my parents than it was on me, particularly on my mom. You know, it's a lot of worry work. And even um, even now, she, you know, I'm a 36-year-old doctor and she, when coronavirus first started spreading, was quick to contact me and tell me like, oh, you know, your immune system might not be as strong as somebody else's. You really need to be careful. And I was like, mom, mom, I understand. Thank you. And you know, you're 66. So you're really the one who should be careful. <laughs> but, um, you know, I think, I think it, it changes a parent going through something like that with their child. Yeah. And I, I think for not just for cancer, I think for anything, you know, like you said, I mean, parents, I mean, you just worry, right? You worry from the, from the day you find out you're pregnant, you worry, worry. And, and any diagnosis, any condition is so stressful. Um, and I think it, it has to change you. There's no other way around that. And I, you know, for any, for a lot of diagnoses, it obviously changes the person, but it, it really changes the dynamics of your family, of your caregivers, of your caretakers, of marriages, of relationships. I mean, you know, I counsel my patients all the time and I tell them, pay attention to your relationships, pay attention to your marriage, because going through something so devastating and so challenging, you really have to be mindful about how you interact with other people. Absolutely. I've see, I saw that in my complex care practice as well. So often the family would go so wrapped up in the child's journey that sometimes it would impact the parent's marriage or the sibling. Mm. You know, it's, it's not just the direct stress of the illness, but also there's associated financial strains that can be difficult when somebody has to stop working to help be a caregiver. It can be a really stressful time for for families, for sure. 
was going to say the the other thing is is about um, just survivorship as a field. It's been so interesting to see um, see what that's like over time. I feel like now there's more and more attention being paid to like long term survivorship, but the maintenance of like you know you've got to get your MRI and you've got to get your echocardiogram and you've got to get your blood work and you've got to do this and that. It um, and when you do all of those tests, inevitably there's some scares here and there down the line and some things that come up. And I think that um, that over time, you, you as a patient or as a parent, like you get used to that. Um, but some of my friends have gone through cancer in the past few years and found the transition to being a survivor to be really stressful because you have, you know, less of the less of the support of going through like the intensive treatment phase, but you still have a little bit of stress. Mm -hmm. And I had one patient in particular who I'm thinking of, um, who was a survivor of childhood cancer. And he was years out from treatment and doing really well, but his mom and he both had a pretty significant anxiety about every time something would come up, whether it was like a sore throat or a swollen gland from a, an infection, you know, that it was like your mind goes to the worst place. So I think, um, I think it's important to recognize that when, it, when you're facing it and um, to find strategies to talk about it and cope with it, because um, sometimes if you don't, it, it's more unmanageable. So I guess that's advice I would give your patients too. It's so true. I mean, we have, you know, when you're going through treatment, there's such a hold on you, right? Every two week follow up, you've got all these things. And then we go, all right, you're done. Congratulations. <laughs> See you in six months. And people are like, what, what, what do you mean? <laughs> what I, you know, cause it's kind of like they're allowed, like, let loose and they they're like okay go rejoin the real world but they can't because they don't know how to exist in this new world as a survivor and we actually see that first year is when at least anecdotally but people struggle with again that common cold you know allergies anything that could be you know bloating from something you ate and and your mind goes to very dark and scary places and by not i actually think that the time, the one to two years after your cancer treatment is probably the hardest. Because when you're going through cancer treatment, you know what you need to do. You have your chemo, you've got surgery, you have radiation, whatever it is. And it's hard and it's hard physically. But after then you have to process, well, what just happened to me? What has happened to mm -hmm. my body? And how do I, again, try to rejoin the world? And people really struggle with that. And they think mm -hmm. it's important for everyone to recognize that it's not easy. Yeah. You know, it's, it's, um, it's also important to understand that um, be having more of a history sometimes makes you, you know, more of a zebra and doctors and sort of our healthcare system is set up to assume certain things about you. Like, like I'll share that when I was in college, I had like a rash on my back and I went to three dermatologists about it because it kept bothering me. And because I was 20, you know, nobody thought it would be possible that I would have like a basal cell carcinoma from the radiation I got because they didn't have it in their mind that like I was a cancer survivor. They thought like 20 year olds don't get 
a basal cell. Like, so nobody did a biopsy. They prescribed like anti-inflammatory creams. I ended up going down this line and it's like, you know, so sometimes you have to be more of an advocate for yourself. Mm-hmm. Um, it's, it's, you know, it's finding that balance of knowing that you are, you are different and you're, you are at increased risk and um, when something's not right, remembering to push and to advocate for the attention that you need, but also like knowing that not every single symptom is something to panic over. And so it, it can be a real challenge, but that's why it's really nice to see at like some of these survivorship programs are opening up um, where you can have long-term uh, surveillance and like, like some counseling and some referrals to people who are more experienced in specific cancer side effects. There's a really big push for survivorship programs, both for adult cancers as well as uh, childhood cancer survivors, because, and those are different issues, right? Childhood cancer survivors, mm-hmm. long-term, again, things side effects of radiation, side effects of chemotherapy, heart disease, right? You need follow-up that needs to be laid out and, and set up for you. And then, you know, for adult cancer survivors, again, people are living longer. I mean, for breast cancer, there's more people, there are more breast cancer survivors dying of heart disease than they are of breast cancer. You right. know? And it just goes to show that we have to pay much more attention about the fact that our therapies are toxic, you know, and mm-hmm. we the field is moving in that direction, but you know we have a ways to we have a ways to go. But I'm you know happy and inspired to see that there are a lot of positive steps in that direction. You know, currently ongoing. Right, and I think it's maybe it's kind of cheesy, but I think some of the social media groups can also be great resources because I'm in a couple for the kinds of you know, 200 kids a year have the kind of cancer I had. So there's just not very many of us. And sometimes the research is a little slow and people find support from people who had the same condition online and sometimes like educate themselves and, Mm -hmm. and things like that. So it's nice that you can connect with other people who have been down the same path in those forums as well, more casually. Absolutely. I mean, social media, I think is revolutionizing healthcare, right? You can, Mm -hmm agree or disagree, but it is. And people, more people, and the American Society of Clinical Oncology did our survey, and they found that more people are turning online to get answers for their healthcare questions than they are to their oncologists. Wow. <laughs> that's crazy, right? Like, I mean, that's why I started being active because pe- that's where people are going, right? That's if you have to meet patients where they are. If they're turning online, you want to make sure that the data they're finding is, is accurate and it's science. But I think these communities that are emerging are fantastic. I mean, you could, especially for these rare cancers, you can connect to people across the country that you would never right. have met in any way. And it gives you, I think, you know, there are some negatives. I think sometimes people see other people recurring of these rare cancers, and that can be yes. hard. But if you look past that, it really can provide a sense of camaraderie, a sense mm-hmm. of you know, just, I I was last, uh, two weeks ago on my podcast, I had Shoni Brown, who is a a breast cancer survivor, and she's African American. And she said, when she was looking online um, for pictures of black women who had mastectomy, she couldn't find any. She wanted to know what it would look like. And she's, she couldn't find anything. And she's now connected with this, you know, amazing group called for the breast of us. And she's an ambassador to them. And it's given her this community of people that understand 
what she's been going through. And it really, I think, makes the experience just, it makes a bad experience better. And that's probably the best way I can, you know, put it, right? I mean, if you have to be diagnosed with cancer, you have to have to find some positivity in that. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. And as much as your family and friends try to empathize and understand what you're going through in some ways, they never really get it in the way that people who have done, you know, done the same treatments and been through the same, same experiences do, you know, so you can get um, support from people in both scenarios. Absolutely. So before we wrap up, is there any advice i know you've given a lot of great advice but is there anything that we didn't touch on that you think would be helpful for people listening to this podcast i guess you know i just want to remind people that even though it's a stressful time and it's a scary time you know you're you're not alone in in your isolation even if you're relatively isolated there's always um people who want to help you whether it's your oncologist or your pediatrician or or your teachers in your school you know we still have our communities even though we're not as involved with them every day thank you so much and just one more time where can people find you and the name right, of right. one more time <laughs> I'm at advice I give my friends on Instagram or Facebook, and my website is the same name, advice I give my friends.com. So you can find the links to the book there too. Fantastic. Thank you so much for joining me today. Yes, it was nice chatting with you. Thank you for listening to my conversation with Dr. Frieden. I hope that you found it helpful and insightful. There's so much information on this episode as well as in her book. And I definitely recommend checking it out. If you did enjoy the episode, I would be honored if you can take a moment to leave a rating and review over on Apple Podcasts for the show, as that is the best way to help me grow it and bring more listeners. You can find me over on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook at Dr. Doplinski or on www.interludecancerstories.com. Have a great weekend and I will see all of you next week.